is the Doing Diversity in Writing podcast, the show where we as authors explore the better practices of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany A. Tucker, and with me each week is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Ready? Let's dive in. Hey, Marielle. Another week, another episode. Hey, Bethany. Indeed. I'm a a little bit afraid to ask, how are you doing? (laughs) I am feeling really blessed and fortunate, actually, even though my voice may not sound like it. And if I'm coughing, I'll edit as much of the coffee now as I can, but I'm here. I had a positive COVID test this week. Basically, the only place I went was the airplane, which I had to fly for medical in another state. And on the way back, there was a bunch of people not following mask mandates, and some people were coughing. And a couple days later, I was quite sick. So we are on the mend. Yeah, I'm glad you are on the mend. Um, And I'm, I'm glad it you seem to be recovering quite fast, so. Yeah, well, I, I've had both of my vaccines and then my booster only like four weeks ago. So I feel like if I was going to get it, this was the time to get it because <laughs> I just got boosted and I feel very lucky that like I didn't have a lot of high fever or any of that. Just extreme exhaustion and this throat. But you will all hear me anyway today because like most of the podcasts I listen to, at least one co-host has had COVID in the last two months for like all of my favorite podcasts almost. So we're keeping up with the trend. Yes. How are you? What have you been working on? Um, I was just thinking because I was reflecting on the year and I, I just realized that I'm still keeping up with the habit that the writing in the morning habit. Excellent. Which I'm, which I'm quite excited because I never thought I could write in the mornings. For the rest, I just basically I have for both for those who don't know I have a massive interpretation of the Kanban board behind me I love it it's like your entire wall you know it's like some people uh including me the reason why we buy so much stationery and colorful pens and sticky notes and stuff is because it gives us a sense that we are going to gain control over our lives um so my Kanban board is like an extension of that but yeah this morning I pulled off pretty much everything until the end of March because I was real I realized I had a bit of overwhelm and then I decided to pull the plug on some stuff or at least pause them I'm sure quite a few people listening can sympathize with that so I'm gonna introduce today's topic yes um we are talking about show don't tell with a focus on race, ethnicity, and I believe culture is going to play a big part in what we end up talking about today. So we we read two books, um, and I'll give you guys the blurbs for those in just a moment. We're going to talk about how Show Don't Tell is used to communicate race, ethnicity, and culture. And then we're going to do a little bit of talking about each book, but also comparing and contrasting how each book did this. And how we can integrate these uh, actual like boots meet the ground techniques into our writing to make that diverse feeling or just give a sense of where we're at and who we're with in our books 
without just being like, oh, we're in Connecticut or we're in Spain or wherever it is and just repeating that over and over again. And also for the characters, right? Like, yes, um, that we don't have to repeat what they look like. Don't have to repeat what they look like. And there's so much more to race and ethnicity than what people look like, even though we have focused on that a bit this season. We're going to move beyond that today. Yes. All right. So the first book we're going to talk about today is written by, I hope I say this correctly, Karen J. Werlinger. And the title of the book is She Sings of Old, Unhappy, Far-Off Things. It's a very long title. I'll say it one more time. She Sings of Old, Unhappy, Far-Off Things. And this is the blurb. Margaret Braithworth was a rising Regency scholar and acclaimed author. 30 years later, she's a one book wonder, a 50 something college professor with the dubious distinction of being an expert on Jane Austen, hidden in the shadows of her famous husband and his Civil War novels. Too young to retire and too old to start over, Margaret feels as dried up and dead as the neglected garden her husband took such pride in before he became ill. Wick Fitzsimmons is the Asheville landscape architect architect Gavin Bradworth, Margaret's husband, hires to restore his precious garden to their former glory. She learned a long time ago that plants and trees are safer and more reliable companions than other people. Under Wick's care, the garden begins to come back to life, but the flowers aren't the only thing blossoming. For the first time in decades, Margaret feels the stirring of love, but those long buried feelings frighten her more than the prospect of withering away alone in her ivory tower of academia. Gavin, more observant than most people give him credit for, sees the attraction develop between his wife and his gardener. Using every means at his disposal, he arranges things so that Margaret has no choice but to remain faithful to him even after death. Margaret, confused and faced with losing everything that offers her any kind of security, flees to England, to Austin and Wordsworth country, where she tries to forget Wick and all the feelings she has awakened. Back in North Carolina, Wick must come to terms with her own past and somehow find a way to forgive before it's too late to make amends. Love, it seems, can take root in even the most barren hearts if only Margaret and Wick can find the courage to let it go, let it grow. So I will say that the blurb is slightly not completely true to the novel. It's also like as somebody who writes blurbs for a living, that is a long blurb. It is a very long blurb. I did not have time to rewrite a blurb for the book today. So it is what it is. No, that, but also that's my job. So it's fine. But I'm like, just listen, because <laughs> I, had, I hadn't read it. I'm just listening to you. I'm like, it's a very yeah, long blurb. About two-thirds of that information can go. Oh, most anyway. of it. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. we don't have to summarize the novel now. No, 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 we don't. No. All right. The other yeah, but that's you... the point. It's it's a that's my point. It's more like a synopsis. Oh, definitely. And, and I, a, I really... then a marketing description, yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay, next the other book. So the other book we're discussing today is The Single Matchmaker by JJ Arias. I hope I'm saying that right as well. And it starts with a nice tagline, who helps Cupid fall in love? Libby Casanova is the last in the long line of matchmakers. After years of hard work, her grandmother has finally handed her control of an empire 
built by generations of Casanova women. When the secret that Libby was dumped by her fiance comes to light, she must act fast to salvage her reputation. There is nothing she wouldn't do to keep the truth of her failed relationship from toppling her future. And that includes pretending to date a woman if it makes her story more believable. believable. Regan Soto is the struggling artist offered a chance at easy money by pretending to be Libby's girlfriend. Upon meeting the tightly wound 30-something-year-old, Regan is immediately intrigued by what lies beneath all the polish and barely held together facade. As Libby and Regan begin playing at love, the line between fantasy and reality quickly blurs. Can Libby get over her fear of getting hurt and see that her perfect match is right under her nose, even if she never expected it to be another woman? Get struck with Cupid's arrow and fall in love with the steamy, slow burn lesbian romance today. That's more like it. <laughs> yes, that, that's definitely more like it in terms of blurbs. Yeah. All right. So these are two books that are technically set in a similar region of the world. They are both on eastern states in the United States. Um, and, and funny enough, I live between these two locations now, which I did not when I first read these books last year. <laughs> So it was an interesting experience rereading them now that I've moved to the greater region where both of these books are set. But reading them, they felt very, very different to me. Very, very much. One's in Florida, one's in, I believe, North Carolina. So I'm in Georgia. North Carolina is north of me by just a little bit. And Georgia is uh, right underneath me. Um, so... Uh, I don't know, it's just very, very different. And there were things that I picked up on now that I've lived here that I didn't pick up on it being a Westerner, <laughs> being someone from the West Coast when I first read the books. How did they strike you in general as you went through them? Well, my, and I don't know if you have the answer to that, but my first, just when comparing the books, the single matchmaker feels very contemporary. Yes. It's like, it could be happening now, right? And with, um, oh gosh, the title, She Sings of... She Sings of um, Old Unhappy it... Far Off. Let's just call it She Sings of. No, yeah, yeah, She Sings. Yeah, that's, that's what that works. So that novel, so I don't, do you know when it's set? They still have cell phones and the cell phones are not huge. So it's sometime between 2000 and... I would say five in 2013. Yeah. Because they don't have smartphones yeah. yet. Yeah. And there's <laughs> laptops. There's laptops. So I would say there's early email, 2000s. Yeah. Because yeah. the funny thing <laughs> is, for me, if it wasn't for the email and the cell phones, it could have been sent in the 1980s. Yeah, I mean, I, it made me think 1980s, 1990s, which yeah. is actually interesting because I've, I've traveled more of the U.S. There are places that I've walked into in the last year, and except for smartphones, it does feel like they haven't changed from that time period. It's, it's, but that, because it's so, for me, the novel was very stilted, mm. just in terms of prose and how the characters behave around each other, the things they say to each other, the internal conversations they have. Uh, and this is something, and I wonder how you read this, because I am 
more familiar with the English countryside. And this is, of course, and I think this is actually quite well done because uh, Margaret is a Regency scholar and she's like really into Jane Austen. But I kept forgetting that the novel was set in the south of uh, the United States. Ah. And, and like I have, a, I have a bachelor in English literature, right? For me, like just the way the novel was written, it felt so English to me. Mm-hmm. So the words like, you know, they talk about uh, Confederates and the Confederation. So they yeah. end the Civil War, of course. You're like, oh, wait, it's the south of the US. Um, <laughs> they talk about, a, a, how's it pronounced? Raleigh? Raleigh? I know it's not pronounced the way. Like, I think it's Raleigh, but I'm not yeah, exactly the, sure. I'm not a southerner. No, and, and I know somebody who lives there who taught me once and I forgot. So, but that for me means, okay, so it's the south of the, you know, it's the south of the of, of the US. So, and like places like Richmond. Yeah, Richmond, so I, Virginia. I need, yeah, so I needed these reminders to be reminded that this was not sat in England. I actually think that either consciously or subconsciously, and it would be fascinating to ask the author, that that was done on purpose. And I was actually wondering how much it would feel to you like that, you being um, from Europe and having studied what you studied. Because to me, it felt like a calculated way of communicating the culture that when people came over historically, from England, um, from from the UK, basically, to the American South, they often sent their sons back to Europe to be educated, that they had just brought their culture over here and were continuing to try to live it. And you see it in a novel as well, right? Because um, at the very beginning, this gardener, right, that the Wick, husband yeah. hires, Wick, like at the beginning, he's like, you're a woman. And he expected her to be. He uh, accuses uh, her of, uh, yeah. um, uh, he doesn't just say lying. He accuses her of her of operating under. Oh, under false pretenses. Yeah. Yes. He doesn't just say you're yeah. lying. He's like, you're operating under false pretenses. As yes. I'm like, what are you, a British lord? <laughs> yes. It, it was, yeah, but that's the sense. And the funny thing is that he is kind of taken with her once he realizes that she actually studied for um like um yeah they, she they was have a, a road scholar yeah. also she was a road scholar but also like architect like she studied landscape that. architecture yeah that and architecture architecture landscape yeah, design stu- and architecture yeah. she studied that in in ireland and in england and that sort of to him makes her rise Right. Yes. So he's more taken with her after realizing, oh, you took your education in like he's the mainland for a of the yeah. pedigree. I mean, it's all yeah. about pedigree. I think that was one of the reasons as well for me. And it's so upper classy. It, it felt so stiff upper lip. Yes. So yeah. stiff upper lip. So let me actually go into some details that brought in this yeah. stiff upper lip and then you flesh it out over the top for me. Now that I'm living in the American South, it was interesting to me to read it. One thing that was missing and definitely gave the book part of its feeling is there were absolutely no people of color in this book. No, there's one mention that is in a comparison. At one point, 
I think it is because there was somebody in like the Confederate um, paraphernalia, like yeah, covered. Andrew yeah. Jackson, somebody or other. Um, she she briefly wonders, so it's an internal conversation, how it would be if she had been Afro American. Yeah, and then. And then she's like, but that, of course, would never happen because even though Gavin, the husband, wasn't racist, he would have never married an Afro-American. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's a person, a concept of a person of cover is mentioned once towards the end of the yes. book. Yeah. But none of them ever get seen by anyone while driving. They don't appear as a person. They don't exist. And in the American South, you have to go out of your way. You have to construct your society to not meet anybody. Yeah, but that's the white. thing, right? And, and that's why it's also so like where they, because so the university they work at is like a very Catholic conservative institution, right? Like they're against the gays, et cetera, et cetera, right? So they're very, and like you said, like people work there who actually parade around with confederate confederation right. stuff yeah so right they're all into the civil war and what they do is they, they do the reenactment things that like people from yes. europe don't understand that you that people <laughs> do that but i'm sure people in the u.s also don't understand some of you i don't um, understand it and i'm sure someone would care to educate me but i i don't understand it so so yes, I would say they have constructed that situation. And I think it was one of the reasons why for me, it almost felt like it was first of all set in an older age, like, yeah, and in England. Yeah. In some small English town where there isn't much diversity because diversity is in the big cities. Exactly. It's more present in, in the big cities. That's kind of that sense um, I got. But then again, of course, you could say nobody is nobody's skin color is, is is mentioned. So you could argue that maybe people are of color in in the novel, but I'm like, no, just the way everybody's described for some reason you just know. Well, I'm gonna get into how you just know, actually. Very wide. Because yeah. I love how they show don't tell in this regard. Yeah. It's so strong. We neither of us have any doubts after reading it. And one of the things you said to me when we started talking about the books um, earlier this week was you were like, Bethany, this book feels, this book she sings of feels so white. And I said, yes. and, and my response was, it feels so English, American South. Like yeah. it's, it was my, I actually had this pushback because I'm like, that's not white culture from like Canada. That's not white culture that's on the Western United States. This is very localized for me. And it's interesting that you felt that this was very, very white when I did yeah, not. But, I felt it was a subset. But, and you're right, because it is, I did say it's, it, it, it's very English. Like it's not Scottish. It's clearly not set in Ireland. Clearly. Either, right? So, so it's, 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 for me, it feels really English. Yeah. yeah. And I'm enjoying yeah. bringing more exactness into my language when I talk about what a book feels like or what a culture feels like, because it's actually opening up ways of um, thinking for me. All right. So yeah. one of the first things I did when I reread She Sings Of is I... I just, we all gut feeling know where names come from. We have an association that name looks like this kind of person kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I double checked my gut feeling and it was like dead ringer every single time. So etymology of Margaret. 
is from Old French, um, which comes from late Latin, which I'm not going to try to say late Latin or old French, but the, that's where the name comes from. The French invaded England, they were nobility, they influenced noble names in England for a long time, which influenced upper class names and to, you know, a trickle down effect into other classes in America when people came over from Europe yeah. to the US or what became the US. So Dead Ringer, that is a very European name. And even in the book itself, she doesn't go by a nickname because Gavin thought, her husband thought that that was improper in his society, Academia Ivory Tower. Yeah. And people are even like, oh, that's kind of stiff. <laughs> Margaret. Margaret is very stiff. And she does have two nicknames. Like her mother calls her Peggy, which gives me a completely different individual. Exactly. Like you see something completely different in your head. And her old, or her first, and, you know, during the book, her last woman lover calls her Maggie. Yeah. Which um, is I believe also... it would be pronounced Maggie. Oh, yeah, because it's written with an E and not with an A. Yeah. Yeah, I've never seen it before. She is very aware of what the name Margaret does yes. to her. Yes. She clings yeah. to it the way she clings to her pressed and bespoke suits. Yeah. All right. And then her, well, her husband's surname that she takes, I believe it said Braithwaite. I don't know. I think so. I, you, I would pronounce it Braithwaite. Okay. And I checked the etymology of this name as well. It is, uh, it was a family in Scottish English borderlands and is used that area. So again, we're looking at Northern England with some yeah. Scottish. It's derived from an old Norse word. Yeah, and it's apparently uh, from ancient Scottish people. Yes, which married yeah. into the nobility during in that weird borderland area, yeah, which yeah, historically yeah. I've barely looked into, but there was a lot of like going back and forth that happened, yeah. no, nobility-wise and otherwise. And then yeah. Gavin, Margaret's husband, is the medieval form of Gawain, which everyone should recognize from the tales of Sir Arthur, the fairy tales of Sir Arthur, which I... Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think you get much more English than that. No, no, you don't. But I believe Gavin is a variant commonly found in Scotland, or it was yeah. found in Scotland and was reintroduced recently. Yeah, it's a very common name even now. Yeah. Yes. So I kept going, um, checking the rest of the names and Wick, which is the shortened form of the uh, Margaret's love interest is a boy's name of Old English um, origin, as is her full name, Wickham. And this is her middle name. She doesn't use her first name in the book. So she's which known is, as Wick. Which is Mary. Yes. So it doesn't get more feminine than that, yeah. She doesn't use Mary at all. No. And then her surname, it's Fitzsimmons, which I just about laughed because it's extremely Anglo-Norman French. Um, yeah. So again, that influence of English history influencing. So as we're going through all of the main people in the story, they have these names that immediately harken back to previous characters in literature, places, names, historical events, where people who had this English American Southern culture also had these names and they're being repeated in our literature, which creates a certain concept in our mind. 
And then I did a few of the more minor characters, like Taylor is also a surname of uh, British Isles of French name of French yeah. origin. And then it, it just kept going like that. I eventually stopped checking the etymology of names because I wasn't getting anything that varied. No, and it, so that's the point. It's very, it's very northern European. So very much the definition of whiteness. Yes, but I didn't uh, even yeah. find anything from the Netherlands. I didn't find anything from Sweden. It was all um, yeah, it was Norman, all like, French, yeah. Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. 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 There wasn't even a Polish or a Belgian or a German. It was very much this one historical lineage. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to do that, with so much accuracy, I wonder if the author did that on purpose, because at least sometimes you get a little bit of a German ancestry in a name or something, but no, this was 100%. When I, when I look at for names for my novel, I, I do check. So I make sure, for example, that if I have given uh, a set of brothers, a mother from Slovakia, right, I make mm-hmm. sure that, the, that all their names, even if their names sound English or, or Welsh or whatever, that it's possible that it can be a combination mm-hmm. so that you can see the roots. So yeah, I, I do the same kind of thing when I pick my names. All right. And I'm going to change a little bit. So when we meet Margaret, the author's setting up what kind of society they live in. And <laughs> yes. she, does that in, she does that in a couple of ways that, I mean, there are some overt tellings in the story, but it's supported so beautifully by this structure of showing instead of telling that it sticks in a way it wouldn't have stuck without all of the showing there. So Margaret, when we first meet her, um, she's getting ready to go to university and her husband's talking to her. She picks up a couple items and it's interesting the way they're named. She picks up her purse, her raincoat, briefcase, and then she tells her husband, Gavin, that she has an early lecture. Now, the, the use of lecture is interesting because that's definitely more of a, in my opinion, as someone who was raised on the West Coast of the United States, that's more of a British thing to say, like an English thing to say. Even when I was in uni, I didn't call it uni. That's something I picked up saying when I was hanging out with my international friends and coworkers later in life. I called it college and I said I went to class. Even when I was in university, I said I was going to class. I didn't say I was going to lecture. No, but it's different for her. Yeah, because she could have said I have an early class, but I wonder whether there's a distinction between like giving a lecture, like as a teach as a teacher, I give lectures, but as a student, I take a class. Not really, because we have lectures. Um, which are usually more public events where a lot of people can go, but class is something with a set time every week that you go to. Uh, okay, okay. okay. So yeah. I didn't pick up on that because that is what we would use. Yes, uh, and it's yeah. what I'm used to hearing from my European friends, but okay, in the yeah. U.S., at least where I went to school, which is Ohio, the Midwest, not even the West Coast, it was class. Okay, um, yeah. And it being an early one that she has repeatedly, it's you don't have early lectures if they're like a one-off event. Those always happen in the evening, pretty much. Yeah, and now I'm thinking that we did distinguish indeed between like seminars with like smaller yes. groups. Those are classes. But then you usually um, 
have like a weekly lecture in which the teacher is just, you know, standing in front of the group as a whole and like giving their presentation. So we would so, have that as well. If, if the class is so big that you break off into seminars where you're like talking and you are participating back and forth, and then there's like a big only talking, but the, the university I went to was a small private um, university where class sizes were capped at 30. And oh, beautiful. Yeah. So you didn't just go to a lecture hall and get talked at by a professor. Oh, yeah. Every class was almost a seminar. You were graded um, by how much you talked. Yeah, yeah that, we do that. Yeah, yeah, we, we did that as well. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, so but this setting for me makes me make me feel okay. Yeah. So I was immediately like, okay. So I think I also because there's so much focus on the status that made it feel very English and snobbish, right? And I know you want to say a little bit more about that. Yeah. So this one is a little less, but as a woman, she picks up a briefcase. I mean, she also has her purse, but she picks up a briefcase, and at least now, and I know the book's a little bit older. Um, you could have said your bag, but no, she is carrying a brief case, which they are used today, but with more laptops and other things, a lot of people are choosing to not use straight up briefcases anymore. No. So it was like a small clue. And then in the same scene, well, almost the same scene, Margaret says to herself, like I have time to deal with the garden help who probably doesn't even speak English. You're giving a very strong so sense. Telling. It's so telling. I don't think we even need to, and I'm not going to stop to break down how telling that is, but gardening help is not a phrase that I would normally use. It's it's much more something that I, I heard like Australians that I worked with say, or a couple of British people I worked with say, but they were all older who said it, I think. When Wick meets Margaret, they have a little bit of a misunderstanding. One, Margaret thinks Wick is a man. And then Wick thinks Margaret is Gavin's daughter instead of her wife. And Margaret, trying to reclaim status, insists on the use of the title doctor for both herself and her husband instead of Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. Yeah. But she does that throughout the doctor thing. Yeah. She introduces herself. Yeah. Yeah. So... Within like five pages, you know just how much status matters. Yeah. Like they're always defending it. Everyone, except for pretty much Wick, is defending their status. Although we do really quickly learn that this is not Margaret's nature. Mm -hmm. And she does use it as a defense mechanism. It's it's like armor. Yeah. yeah. All right. So other words. So we're getting down the sentence levels here. Words that are used in Margaret's environment at the university include things like sanctum when referring to her office, actually inner sanctum, lecture hall, reading glasses and undergrad English class. So the author is really pulling from historical literature, really using a certain set of lexicon word choices to just suffuse the actual it's like a choice of color but in word choice which contrasting to the other book we read 
the single matchmaker where you have words like YouTube and glass walls and it feels very much more modern and like right there you almost feel like Margaret and this whole book got stuck in a Regency library under dust somewhere it's the whole pace of their lives like the single matchmaker um Libby Elizabeth Casanova the the protagonist Mm -hmm. she's constantly putting out fires everywhere and most Constantly. of those fires come from social media. Her right? phone so she has, off the hook. Yeah, she knows she, where there's Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah and, and she gets, because uh, she, she's set up to get uh, notifications if some blogger or newspaper is mentioning her name or I people related to her. Alerts? I don't know. It's something her assistant set up for her. Okay. So um, it's constantly going, right? So she's very much in the here and now. She's always like on the move, trying to fix things, trying not to fail. So it's much more of a rush. And that, very much. I think that's also because that's kind of the life that we're leading right now, right? Everything is much faster. That's why uh, she sings off, feels so, so much older to me, despite like the cell phones and the laptops. Because the people take so much time. They and take time to process, it. time to think. But also time to move from A to B in the writing, but, in the prose. And that's kind of like, it's almost alienating. Yeah, but now that I'm living in the American South, and I understood some of this before I moved here, but it, it's more in the forefront of my mind because I walk down the streets and stuff, see it here. The, the repeated reference to the Confederacy, that character that was literally named after Andrew Jackson, the fact that Gavin, her husband, was churning out book after book about the Civil oh, War, which yeah. weren't all novels like the um, synopsis said. A lot of them were academic treatises and research. And like yeah. he's, his work is considered by the society they're in to be so important and it needs yes. to be enshrined and embalmed and all of his notes categorized and labeled and numbered and preserved yeah. for the future. But honestly, Gavin is just replaying a war that's been over for over 100 years, for over yeah. 150 years. Yeah. And just doing it again and again. He's not changing the future. He's not changing the world. He's focused on the past and he's respected for it. That You know what? Now you're saying that. Like when I compare that to the other novel, which is set in Miami, the she sings off, right? It's quite stuck. The characters are quite stuck. They're all stuck in the past, right? They all have to yes. overcome certain things. Um but um, single matchmaker, the only thing she cares about, the Pregas cares about, and also her her love interest, is the future. It's not about, yeah, it's it's more about the the legacy they still have to leave. Mm -hmm. Hi, everyone. It's Mariella. Are you tired of getting in your own way and not having a sustainable writing practice? then the 52 Weeks of Writing Author, Journal and Planner is for you. 52 Weeks of Writing makes you plan, track, reflect on and improve your progress and goals an entire year long. 
it gets you to unravel the truth about why you aren't where you want to be, and it keeps you writing through weekly thought-provoking quotes and prompts. 52 weeks of writing brings together every lesson I have learned over the past few years as a writer and a writing coach. Wary as I am of comparisonitis and unhealthy competition, I designed this undated author journal and planner to help writers develop a practice that honors their own needs and desires. If you're ready to become the writer you were always meant to be, go to mswordsmith.nl slash journal and order your copy today. There's a lot of history for Cuban culture. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's kind of fallen, that part of the city's fallen on hard times. There's an excitement about where those foundations can take them into the future, but not a nostalgia for hanging on to it the way it was. Yeah, so it's not, it's, it's, it's about honoring and not about preserving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, honoring and taking the good things forward. Yes, yeah. But it's not about like what you said, enshrinement and embalming, right? It's 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 about it's not about keeping things. And I think, and I'm wondering whether that's another one of those very um, white things, like to keep things the way they are and then don't touch them. I, I'm, I'm just, I, I don't know, right? Because that is, my culture is very part. Even Dutch culture is very, can't touch this, right? Like this is how we've done things. Even though we've only done this thing for maybe a hundred years, don't you dare. So I'm wondering whether, so I'm not sure, I don't know that, right? I don't know that. That's just. Uh... For me, I would say a lot of the, the Civil War reenactments, Gavin writing book after book about the Civil War. Although I see this happening with World War II literature as well, book after book about World War II, which makes slightly more sense to me than the Civil War, is that some people in the American South, even though we're generations past, cannot let go. Cannot let go of that point in history. Cannot let go of what it means. They their own identities are wrapped up around that period of history and whatever it meant or whatever it means to them. And there is status wrapped up into that. Um, yeah. I feel like if we dig into that right now, it will take us a whole nother direction. Yeah, um, and I do, I'm looking at the time, so we do need to, yeah. we, have, we have so much. <laughs> that we, we have so, so much. So I'm gonna go into another way that whirling or color she sings of and gives culture a place without overtly saying X. Margaret guesses that Wick's name, Wickham, is in homage to Frances Hodges Burnett, author of A Little Princess in a Secret Garden. And these are English classics that had um, little girls at the forefront. Like we're talking about eight, nine, 10, 11 year old girls as the main characters. And Wick claims that A Secret Garden is one of her favorite books, but it's not why she has that name. And then she goes on to reference yet another classic um, in saying that even though she is as charming as Jane Austen's Mr. Wickham, she claims to be a better character than that fictional character um, and that she spells her name with a Y and not an I. So all of this is kind of an experience that the, re- the writer has crafted for the reader, that if you are, if you know of and or part of this culture, 
you're just at home. You're, you yeah. are being fed butter <laughs> to credit Taylor, the seven fiction author, uh, but you're being fed what you already enjoy. And it's like this little Easter egg. You get to go, oh, I know that. And I yeah. know what these people are talking about. There's suddenly hundreds of years, thousands of hours of reading and writing and experiences that show up on the page without the writer having to actually put them there. Yeah. So I don't know, how do you feel about that? And do you ever do that yourself? I don't know if I do that. I do have that feeling like, because they mentioned so many novelists, right? Oh, so many. Tennyson, so, Wordsworth, Austin, yeah. over Burr. again. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, is, it is for me, it's like the names I do know, right? That immediately gives me more of that sense. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, it's, 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 um, and I think that is why, and that's why I would argue that she's doing this on on purpose. Exactly. Uh, Because it's, it's, it's well executed um, to give you really this sense. um, Like even when she goes, so eventually um, she goes to England, right. Uh, After uh, spoiler alert, her husband succumbs to his illness and he is 20 something year old years older than her yeah 27 or something uh, yeah. i think it's 27 yeah and um so then i'm like yes now so now i am now when she's just describing the surroundings first of all it's 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 what i know right mm-hmm. so i i when she describes it i'm like i know this landscape right i know the the sort of like english landscape she describes i'm familiar with it personally but also then all those books they mention they they mm-hmm. make more sense yeah right? exactly yeah. so she does it i think she does it really well yeah so i was thinking about how we could use this like how someone else would use this and as a fantasy author when I'm set um, one of my main series in an alternative universe I gave up the access to using some of that stuff unless I decided certain authors and experiences were in my alternative universe and then for my Mustang Rabbit books Adelaide I definitely gave all of that up because I don't have all these things But you can, and I actually am doing this in some of my work, build this into your story. And as you write a longer series, you can reference back to fictional authors, paintings, um, artists, and weave that into your own story and your readers will get excited for it. I do that actually. I have uh, my main protagonist from my YA fantasy series, uh, her grandmother is a historian. Mm-hmm. Um, but a controversial one. Okay. So at one point she meets someone at a party and it turns out that they're like my protagonist love history. So they know of, so they're like, that is your grandmother. So they completely geek out over that fact. Uh, so yeah, I do, I do use that. Yeah. Like as a fictional. Yeah. Yeah. So as writers, we can use this technique no matter what genre we're in, we'll just have to adapt it. And if yeah. you're writing fantasy, like um, you can leave these Easter eggs and you just make sure you have a wiki of your own culture, like the names of artists that are dropped or books that someone was reading. And then if you can bring them back, because don't be me and like drop an artist's name and then be wanting to reference that artist again 
200,000 words later and you're like, oh, I, I, I can't even search. I've, I've got to remember which scene I mentioned him in and find the same name. So just keep a wiki of that as you're going on. But then if you are writing in the real world, you can bring all this in and you can yeah. really you can really say a lot with your word choices, with the literature you mentioned, with what's going on. Like Margaret has certain kinds of art on her walls. She goes to certain kind of houses and parks and all of this yeah. just communicates something. So I had more thoughts on the book, but we're running out of time. And I think, yeah. would you like to uh, lead us out on the single matchmaker and focus on that for a minute? Yes, and also to give uh, the listeners some very um, more practical. Uh, so I, 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 do, I, I do have some comparisons between the books as well. So, for, so uh, The Single Matchmaker, it's a completely different book. It's set in Miami. It's much, like we said already, it's, 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 it's much faster paced. Also because like uh, uh, Libby Casanova, um, she's putting fires out anywhere. Like everywhere, all the time. Yeah, she's always she literally running. runs eighteen flights of stairs on the first two pages. Yes, that's what she does. Uh, t- trying to put out a fire, right? Um, so, of course, like when you do the name thing, interestingly, so the, her name is Casanova, which we know is not an English, is not, not Norman, not no, not at all. Um, her name is Elizabeth. Her full name. Her for yes. first, uh, first full name. And Regan, that's also not necessarily Cuban, right? Mm-hmm. And they are both, they both have her, both their parents come from Cuba. Yes. Uh, and that is actually told. That's, that's not necessarily shown. That's actually made explicit in the, in the, in the novel. Um, so I found that really interesting that there is a bit of a mix there in it as well. Like they have quite, they have quite, their their two names don't scream that they are not necessarily um, Anglo-Saxon. Not necessarily, yes. But um, the Elizabeth is spelled with an S and uh, the Casanova family, I think is Catholic and Elizabeth would come from that Catholic background. Okay, that, yeah, that... That makes sense, yeah. And her gra- grandma, like, there's, there's names like Carmen, Iliana, Carlos, mm-hmm. right? So we do get these names with the older generation. Yes. So that kind of reinforces. So it's not it's not Gavin and James and Arthur, right? It's it's Carmen, Carlos, a... and Iliana, right? So yeah. It's, so it's it gives you a different sense. So names, I would say, are very important. Something else that I really struck me is that uh, when we talk about compare the books, the first couple of pages, she sings off the breakfast is a warm oatmeal and then there's sandwiches for lunch, right? Which yes. strikes me as like I made I made oatmeal yesterday, right? Um, so for me, that's very common, right? But the first few pages of um, the single matchmaker, they talk about guava danishes. And she pours herself coffee. Cuban coffee. Yes. Yeah. So that is already, that's already, already on those first pages, you get hints that, Mm -hmm. okay, there is, she, she comes from a, she comes from a, a, not from the same culture as she sings of, right? It's not the same cultural background that she has, not the same heritage. Um, 
and then later on like food is also described and often in their in their uh, Spanish names yes it made me hungry it sounded delicious <laughs> yes so that so food is definitely important uh, an important way you can do this because that I'm also it's thinking endemic. about Everyone yeah, I'm also eats. thinking yeah but I'm also thinking about Encanto now and they do the same right yes um, and uh, Julia takes a breath is, is another novel also very heavy on the food mm-hmm. and so that for me it's 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 gives so much sense of the culture um it's also in the terms of endearment like in in she sings off it's darling and my dear yes and in um the single matchmaker is words like mira and mia mm-hmm. and they're not they're not even like put in italics right it's so some of part the, of how they yeah, talk. Some of the Spanish words are put in. So because there is a lot of code switching going on in that novel as well. Like they switch between Spanish and uh, and English, right? Um, so that is of course something that immediately shows you uh, uh, some of the culture, the cultural background. What I really loved is there is this reference to um, telenovelas. Oh, I was going to bring that up if you didn't, yeah. because immediately yeah. that was such a strong trigger for me to be like, oh, these people have, they enjoy a little bit different kind of media from, say, She Sings Of that I just finished reading. Yeah, because when I think telenovela, I think uh, Latin America. Yeah, I think That's of the show, um, oh, I'm I'm going to, it's Netflix show where the girl gets artificially inseminated and then everyone thinks she's like magically having a baby but she's not uh, the yeah the virgin um virgin jane yes thank you i haven't Everything. seen it i haven't seen it but i i yeah her estranged father is a actor a main actor in a telenovela but and this is the thing and it's it, it's like it, like the, the telenovela also comes up in like encanto Yes. Right. And it's just like the way you just know, like, so this one in, in, in uh, uh, the single matchmaker, they talk about the hidden twin. Right. And it's mm. like such a common because the telenovelas are the thing is, funnily, like it's it's like we have soap opera. Yes. Right. So that's that's our version of it. And, and we have the same really weird, convoluted, complex story arcs. Um, but it's just, you know, when they start talking about hidden twins or aunts with amnesia, that's kind of the, the style. So that for me was like immediately like, okay, we're talking about a very particular cultural background here. Yes. And it's in her thoughts. It's not like it, it's, it, it just runs off the tongue. It's the little details. Yes. Yeah. It's not set up. It's like, it's really, it flows naturally into the storyline. It's baked in, yeah. not only in the storyline, yeah. but in the way she comments on her world. Like, she just sees things a certain way because of her background. Yes. So the other thing is place names. Like, we already talked about uh, Rowling and uh, Richmond and Asheville um, in She Sings Of. So we have Miami, which we know is a very multicultural setting. Yes. Um, but she also refers to Havana. Like her parents came from Havana, right? Or her grand, her, her grandmother actually came from Havana. Um, so this is a way also to bring about without specifically saying they're Cuban or she's half Cuban or or part first second generation. 
just simply saying grandmother in Havana and then you have this sense of, okay, so that's the cultural background. Um, what I really loved and made me think of your Idris Elba uh, comment you had a, a few episodes ago, um, that somebody described somebody as a young Idris Elba. That was episode two, season two. So two episodes okay. ago. Okay. So she actually has, she looked a little like dot, dot, dot. I don't know this person. If she had darker features. Ah. Which also for me, so I have no idea who this person is, right? But it's, so again, with the contemporariness, it yes. must be some some actress or some model or something. But it doesn't really matter because she mentioned if she had darker features. And immediately you get this idea of someone who's probably, you know, seen in the movie industry, whatever, and yeah. a little bit inside this other culture that we're reading within. Yes. And then so her her soon-to-be love interest looks like her, but a bit darker. Got it. So it's very subtle for me, but I loved it because it's it was so close to your Idris Elba uh, uh, comment. Um Another thing what, which I thought was really well done, I don't know if you picked up on that, but like when they talk about cultural background and like their childhoods, like they also, they, for example, they talk about the, um, I cannot pronounce it, Quen, Quentin Senyera. Oh, um, now that you said it, I'm going to. Yeah, Quentin I, uh, I, I, I should have written Quinciera, I think. It I should have written it down somewhere. It so, happens when girls are 15 and they are welcomed into womanhood. And it's like, they have these huge dresses. It's such a big deal. It's like a wedding. Yeah. So I didn't know that existed. But of course, in the US, you have the sweet 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in, in different cultures, there are different ways to do this, right? Yeah. So that, so that was one thing that I'm like, that was very... Um, that, that, that gave me such a visual. Yeah. Um, but also they talk about, they talk about children's stories. And for me, it's, in, and they talk about una calabaza, like not changing into a pumpkin. And Which for me- something I didn't know about. You don't know the story about changing into a pumpkin? That's no, like- the, uh, the Spanish that you just said. I, I wouldn't have uh, known what that was because I don't speak Spanish. But I don't speak we Spanish have the either. But to a pumpkin, but in reference to the Cinderella story, if you stay out too late, you'll turn into a pumpkin. Yeah. So I. So for me, it gave me the sense of similarity. I, I only recognize the word because it's very close to a Dutch word for a type of pumpkin. Oh. So that's why I recognized it. Um, so for me, it it it, it gives both the sense of difference and the sense of sameness. Mm-hmm. Like. You know, even though it's in a different language, we all we all grew up with the same stories. So I yes. thought that was really beautifully done. It was sort of like um, bridging in our difference. Yes. Um, so that I think, and I was also thinking when I thought about that, they do the same thing. You can do a lot with children's stories, and what doesn't what what does a character know, and what doesn't a character know? It made me think of. I don't know. It's one of the later Harry Potter films, and it's. It's. I think it's. It's. it's it must be in the book as well. This scene that um, they're sitting together. It's at the party. It's at a wedding. It's um, okay. just before. Just before they disappear and go off. So it's probably the. It's one of the older Weasley weddings. Yeah. Yes. To Fleur de la Cour. 
the French Yes, girl. yes. So they sit together and Ron is talking like about all these old stories like Beetle the Bard and stuff like that. And Hermione and Harry are like, uh, what? <laughs> and he got, and he, and he's like, come on, like, you know, and that is, that gives me the same, you can do so much with children's stories to show that people have or do not have a similar background. Exactly. So that, like, that's, that's, yeah. So I loved how that came up. And if you're writing a culture you don't know, it's, it's pretty straightforward to go and be like, what are children's stories? And read them. Yes. And like, yes. Just soak that up. And then, I mean, you're probably going to want a sensitivity reader to check you when you're done, but then leave that into the story. Let it be a touchstone for people because it it just brings in like, for me, it feels like soft wool into the story of realness. Yeah. Yeah. So I really love how that came up. It's so subtle. It's like a sentence, right? Mm -hmm. But it does so much. Another thing, just a practical is... um, the jokes that are done, you can do a lot with jokes. So in, in The Single Matchmaker, they talk about Thanksgiving. And the fact that, so this is for me interesting because it also shows that partly partly they've adapted to American culture in terms of how things are done. And partly some part of the family is more conservative. So for example, mm-hmm. Libby's grandmother is the more conservative one and her family is a bit more stiff. And yes. then Regan's family is not like that. They're more relaxed and 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 chill. And yet they share a culture in very different ways. Yes, they share a culture. Um, but um, Regan's family has decided because it was easier uh, to do Thanksgiving early, so they don't have all. So the, the one of the perks is they don't have all the drunken uncles. <laughs> and then Libby jokes, "How very American of you." because she says that their lichon I don't know what that is but that's like uh, uh, the food they're having she said if our lichon is not is ready by nine uh, o'clock we're like lucky right yeah like that's like so there's this sort of little thing also about this intercultural difference between um, how some families try to stick to certain uh, customs and others are, are are sort of like tweaking them but just as how very American of you reminds you that these two main characters are not necessarily white Americans but they are part of that majority they are American but what they're referring to here is sort of this white American tradition yeah for me it was also the majority culture I would say yes but as political majority culture as, as we've mentioned before those numbers are shifting yeah, that's what I said, political majority, right? Yeah. yeah. For me, it was interesting reading those Thanksgiving scenes because at least, I think, I would have to reread again, but I think over half of the food they're eating, I either didn't know what it was or I absolutely knew this is like Cuban food, um, inter- uh, 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 intercultural food, um, but not what I grew up eating for Thanksgiving. Not at all what I recognized yeah. as Thanksgiving food. Yeah. I, I, and that, that, that didn't even strike. And now you're saying it. I'm like, yes, but of course, I've never done Thanksgiving. Mm. Um, because yeah, there's no reason it, for us to do it. Um, 
I'd, I would argue that there's no reason for anyone to do it, but that's a completely different political discussion. Um, so I did not pick <laughs> will, up on it. If anyone's yeah, going to talk right. about that on this show, I will let the European do it. As the American, I'm abstaining for the moment. No, but it's, 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 now you're saying it, it's like, it's such a great way to show that even, even in the similarities, like now we don't have the drunken uncles, which is like this joke, right? Like this, this Thanksgiving idea that there's always this uncle, uh, that race, this racist uncle who gets really drunk or, and he doesn't have to be racist. He can also be homophobic or both or just, so it's kind of a nice reference to that. But at the same time, they do them. Yeah, so that, that so again, it's this we show that we do things a little bit different. Because, so because there's a lot of dancing and music happening um, at these th- at, at, at and then one what of these, they choose yeah. to wear. For me, the culture, some of it showed up in what they were choosing to wear and the care they took with it. Especially when they dressed up for that one party and their friend, um, I think it was Regan's friend, helped them get outfits. Mary, yeah, the designer, yeah, yeah. Like, as they were describing the clothes and the cut of the clothes, that was very, it didn't, I mean, they weren't, um, they weren't coming out and being in your face, but it was very natural and organic to everything else that had already happened. And it just reconfirmed that this is their culture. The way it was very natural and organic for me to grow up and my cousin was in Irish step dancing. She had that whole outfit that is very specific to Irish step dancing. But then, so clothes is another way. Like we have Margaret who wears slacks because her husband doesn't, like she con- consistently refers to the fact that she hasn't worn jeans in, she doesn't know how long. And then she meets, she meets Wick. And even before her husband dies, she's already wearing jeans again. And uh, she like, starts wearing slacks, but I think she's wearing jeans in the very last scene. It's very no, specific. Oh, it's not, it's, it's, no, it's not slacks. It's like a, a khakis or something. Khakis are totally khakis. different than jeans. Like, yeah, I know. I know. Progression. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, it's from slacks to khakis to jeans. Yes. But then she wears the khakis with a tunic instead yeah. of a suit jacket. Yes. Right? No, yeah. the progression of Margaret's clothes through she sings of is so calculated by degrees. It's almost yeah. painful because I grew up in that culture of like knowing exactly what you had to wear. And it was anxiety inducing when I was, you know, doing military functions or higher ed functions. And I didn't know what the dress code was because you had to know. Yeah, but that is the same, actually. Um, they do something similar in the single matchmaker. Exactly. So that's actually something that is maybe... Um, it bridges different cultures. Mm-hmm. Like the, these are also these unspoken codes. So you can use the same concepts and techniques yeah. writing multiple cultures. Cause she has to wear certain things when she sees Regan's family, Libby does. And certain things when she meets her grandmother, the yeah. older Casanova woman who used to be the owner of the company that she's, that Libby now has. Like there's all yeah. these social expectations. Like she has to put clothes in her car at one point and we know exactly what they are. Yes, and 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 I'm thinking of because they do think they do both Thanksgivings because one is the afternoon one, one is the late one at night, and then Regan makes the mistake to dress up for the late one, so in a more 
more proper style because it's a more more of a fancy like they, they live in this huge mansion kind of house which is really feels like you cannot touch anything which is actually funnily quite quite to how um the house in in she sings of is described right it's like very mm-hmm. it's like this big Stiff kind of mansion and like yes like everything you cannot touch right so that is um so she makes a mistake of dressing up for that party and then first they go to a party where there's like lots of dancing so she's like completely sweaty <laughs> because she sort of miscalculated she should have taken extra clothes so you can definitely play play a lot with that as well yeah yeah so we probably should start wrapping up do we have some final yes. thoughts here um, these books were both so rich in show note and tell i love the fact we were able to compare and contrast them because they were so different and yet had so much in common they are and now we talk about it i'm like oh they 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 so many of those techniques they both use mm-hmm. right um but no i think just sort of like so i can briefly go uh like so when you're trying to convey a culture or a race think of things like food terms of endearment um cultural customs like including difference between soap opera and telenovela like who is watching what on television um but also who is watch who's reading which newspaper or news outlet stuff like that right like think of things like that the place names that you drop uh the comparisons that you do like what mm-hmm. are you comparing something to um whether or not you have code switching. Yes. I would say there is some, so code switching means two things. Code switching means between languages, but it also means between social languages. So we have actual languages. So actually Margaret also code switches when her colleague Taylor enters the room and he closes the door. She speaks a different kind of language because he's the only person she's almost true to herself with. Almost. Yeah, so she, her body language changes, her, what she says changes. Mm-hmm. So she's also doing a bit of code switching there. So you can play with that, absolutely. And yeah. it's almost a crime if you don't code switch. Like part of the problem with her colleague that she's more comfortable with, Taylor, I believe it is. Yes. Uh, is that he doesn't code switch as much as she does. And other people hold that as a crime against him. And he gets fired for it. He does. Yeah. He does. So like I said, like, like I talked about children's stories, but the bigger thing is, of course, just just background, like how, what is, what kind of cultural baggage does everyone have? Can you mm-hmm. make, can you make note of that? Can you sort of like put that in there just in a very subtle, like what are the books they have in their, on their bookshelves? What are the TV shows they grew up watching? Right. Yep. What do they uh, call pants? What do they call shoes? What do they call their bag? All that, yeah, all that, yeah, that as well. Yeah, so what are the what are the names? What are the names? Uh, is it a uh, class or a lecture? Yeah. Yes. I mentioned jokes that you can put, like, if, if you really want to uh, mark a, comp- a difference, a contrast, you can use jokes for that. You already brought up names, right? Like, yes. when you do your names well, that will tell you a lot. Um, and it's okay to borrow a name from something else in literature that you want to suggest or you remind a reader of 
It's totally okay yes. to name a character after another fictional character. That happens yes. in good literature all the time. Yes. And that does a lot of work for you. Mm -hmm. Shorthand yeah. is amazing. Steal like an artist all the way. Yes. And there's also the assumptions that we talked about, like, you know, like with Margaret thinks, oh, the gardener, garden, the garden help who doesn't probably doesn't speak English. That's also a really great way to bring off, to bring across who your main character is without saying who your main character is. Yeah, I um, cringed because I remember my grandmother complaining about trying to find a gardener that spoke English. Yeah, I mean, here in <laughs> Cyprus, it's uh, there's a lot of complaining about getting like work, work people, like plumbers and stuff like that, who speak English. I mean, you're in an expat community. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be shortly all the things you can think of. Um, so, the, and the, so this is not to say, I, I think my final notes would be, this is not to say that none of these, that these books don't use telling. Because there is, there is a, a, in, in a, the single matchmaker, skin tones are sometimes described, not all the time, but sometimes they are described. There's brown eyes are consistently uh, repeated. So some of these more visual markers do, like Happen. bodily visual yes. markers, they do come across. They do say, they do give a brief, brief history of where their parents or grandparents come from, right? So they do tell some things and that's okay. Like if you show everything, you're gonna end up with books that are like, what, 500,000 words? But you have to pick what you tell and what you show. And I think weaving in everything we've been highlighting here beneath the telling, it, it's like giving it a really strong basket to carry what you do choose to tell outright. Yeah. It just makes it organic. It makes it seep in. It's almost like, like making a soup and you let the spices simmer. Then every part of the soup has that taste in it versus like one yeah. line of your book. Because if the single matchmaker wasn't filled with all of these words and descriptions and subtle references, when they do talk about their Cuban parents or that um, the grandparents of Regan or that the grandparents, um, Libby's Libby. grandparents came from um, Havana, right? You would have been like, what? It would have been a little bit of a shock instead of feeling like, oh yeah, this is a coat I already know fits. Yes, yes. So it 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 makes the whole it makes your, when you build your world, it makes yeah. for like you said, it makes for the complete recipe. Exactly. Stick with food. Exactly. Um, Any final so thoughts on your side? I, I do. I just have two. Um, I looked up the reviews for both books and there was one review for the single matchmaker by jj oh, yeah. arias that um stuck out to me and i will only read part of it it's a little long the reviewer writes i have to admit a little prejudice when it comes to this author i am cuban and try to support the community and that is how i stumbled on jj arias um because arias is a, I believe a cuban american author um the reviewer says I was born in Cuba and my family left right after the revolution. So this story was a walk down memory lane. The humor is wonderful. The characters complex and engaging. 
and the story of weaving culture and generations that just made it a great read. So even though this is one of those, I'm, I'm talking now for myself, even though a single matchmaker is almost, I mean, the, the premise has been done 10,000 times. It is a page turning romance. It is a fast read. It, it reads like pop candy. It means a lot. It's not just a frivolous piece of literature for so many people. And it's a doorway for everyone else who's not Cuban, Cuban American. Um, yes, and that it's, it's, it's like, it's important in terms of representation. It's important in terms of representation. It means something, it's a touchstone, it's a warm hug, it's an acknowledgement. Um, and I would say that for the people who Jane Austen means a lot to them, that they struggle with that, you know, parts of their lives being stuck in the Civil War era in the American South, she sings of, feels the same way. Yeah. And I didn't find a review that explicitly said that. I ran out of time because frankly, I was sleeping sick with COVID. So my <laughs> work was a little truncated, but it's uh, don't discount it. Give yourself credit. It, it matters when you weave these things in, you can take a book that is just a story to something that really matters to the people yeah. who read it. And they buy all of your books and they read it over again and they pass it on and you've now created something that has this weight and meaning to people because you yes. did the details of weaving it in at the organic level yes yeah that's I all i have more that i think we better another long <laughs> one another long one all right all the links and stuff will be in the show notes online or on youtube if you are there Welcome to everyone who's following us on YouTube. We're happy to have you. And um, yes. send us messages. If there's books you want us to read, um, drop an email or a comment and uh, we will take a look at it. Because Bethany will have me read everything. Like <laughs> Slowly, she... slowly. <laughs> slowly, slowly. She's very, you must read this. You must watch this. So. <laughs> All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thank you for joining us. Music for this show was written and produced by Eric Mills. If you found this episode helpful, please rate and review on your favorite podcast app and spread the word so other writers can find us too. To get our Doing Diversity in Writing Toolkit, which includes all bonus material from season one, go to representationmatters.art. That's dot A-R-T. Here you will also find our episode show notes. Happy writing and see you next episode.